I'm Henry Sinjin from the US Rate Strategy Team, and you're listening to At Any Rate, our global research podcast, where we take a look at the story behind some of the biggest trends, themes, and industries in markets today. I'm joined today by Alex Rover, Jay Barry, and Josh Younger to talk about negative Fed funds futures and even more negative swap spreads. Firstly, I'm joined by Head of US Government Bond Strategy, Jay Barry. Jay, last week's refunding announcement uh, came as a bit of a surprise in terms of the mix between uh, bills and coupons. Uh, what did the TBAC announcement tell us and what does it suggest about how further stimulus will be funded going forward? Thanks, Henry. So I think the magnitude of the financing estimate that we got on Monday afternoon far outseeded our expectations with the Treasury saying it would need to have a net issuance of about $3 trillion in the current quarter. And then Wednesday morning, when we got the refunding announcement, the auction sizes that were announced for the next few months uh, were increased to the magnitude that they were more in line with where we thought auction size would be by the end of this year, not by the middle of the summer. And the takeaway is, is that we're getting a lot more long duration issuance more quickly than we would have expected. And I think there's sort of three undercurrents through this refunding announcement that are sort of running through everything that we learned that are driving Treasury to take these aggressive steps. The first is really related to uncertainty and the uncertainty over how long the COVID crisis will last and whether more fiscal stimulus will be needed, and perhaps not whether more fiscal stimulus will be needed, but rather how much. And if that's the case, that meant that Treasury needed to act expediently right now to start to term out this issuance, particularly because it has leaned so heavily on the bill market for the better part of the past six weeks. The second piece of the puzzle, and and this is somewhat related, um, is due to debt management strategy. And the Treasury, together with the TBAC, for the last number of years have been relying on a debt optimization model that has sort of said that the average maturity of your debt should be somewhere in the sort of intermediate sector of the curve, because this is sort of the optimal mix of reducing rollover risk but also minimizing the volatility of interest expense relative to GDP. Now, with the real sheer reliance on bills, and there's been um, close to $1.5 of net bill issuance over the last six weeks, this sets the stage for the average maturity of the Treasury's debt to sort of shrink by six to seven months from its average levels of the last few years and getting back to levels that persisted nearly a decade ago. So that is, is undesirably short from the Treasury's perspective and meant that it needed to react more aggressively to sort of um, start to term out issuance to return it back to levels that we haven't seen in the past. And then the third is related to the Fed. Now, the Fed's purchases, which have totaled close to $1.5 trillion since the middle of March, have been tapered. And right now, we're running at a pace of $7 billion per day, more than 90% below the $75 billion a day that persisted through early April. I think there is some sort of consensus take from primary dealers that the understanding with the Fed is that because these purchases are aimed at market functioning, if the market dysfunction were to sort of increase once again, that the Fed would be back here to slowly turn the dial back up. So I think uncertainty over future financing needs and how aggressive they may be once again next quarter, the need to get the average maturity of the debt back to a level that's consistent with its debt management objectives, and then finally having the backstop of the Fed. So going forward, we think given our deficit forecasts, which are $4 trillion for this year and $2.3 trillion for fiscal 21, which begins in October, that the need for further very large increases in auction sizes 
should not be the same as we saw this quarter. So instead of seeing $2 billion a month of increases in the short to intermediate sector, we're looking for merely $2 billion a quarter. So it, it is a sort of slower pace that we're going forward with, but we think there's a commitment to extend the average maturity of Treasury's debt, primarily because it's shrunk so fast over the past couple of months. So given the deluge of supply that is coming at the very long end, uh, and, and given that outlook that you alluded to there of Fed purchases, how do you think about the shape of the Treasury curve evolving over the next coming months? We think it's definitively um, a steeper curve from current levels. And certainly one aspect is the Fed's tapering. We think ultimately the Fed will get to a pace of purchases on a daily basis that will somewhat resemble a more normal QE program, somewhere in the vicinity of 3 to $5 billion a day. But that's not going to be enough to offset the duration supply that we're getting. As we look at it, we see gross duration supply in coupon treasuries, which was averaging close to 150 billion 10-year equivalents per month through April, is set to increase to an average of about 216 billion per month for the balance of the year, if we're correct with our forecasts. That's an increase of about 40%. So on that basis alone, with the Fed stepping back its purchases and having an increase in gross duration supply, particularly as the Treasury is extending the average maturity of its debt, that points to a steeper curve because we've estimated that every 100 billion 10-year equivalents of Fed purchases over a one-month period has lowered 10-year yields by about six basis points. So as the Fed sort of slows that pace, it should gradually increase yields alongside the increase in duration supply. And the second piece of the puzzle is how this will be absorbed. We've taken a few surveys over the last few years asking how increased long-end issuance and the introduction of new points along the curve would impact existing demand. And we asked this once again, just prior to the 20-year announcement. And the most recent survey found that the introduction of the 20-year would likely cannibalize demand for Treasury's existing suite of long-duration products, mainly the 30-year bond, um, and to a lesser extent, the 10-year note. And with the announcement that we got, I think the consensus from our forecast and from many other forecasters is that Treasury would start with a, a new issue 20-year size of about $13 billion per month. Instead, we got $20 billion per month to start. So that, coupled with what we've already learned on a cannibalization of demand for the existing long end of the curve, points toward a steepener as well. Um, and then the third piece of the puzzle is related to market functioning. If we look at a host of indicators from market depth across the curve, to the root mean square error of our par curve, which is really just a measure of dispersion of that, uh, across the curve, to primary dealer positions in treasuries, when we aggregate those and sort of put them in an index, we find that it's the long end of the curve that is still the furthest away from sort of normal market functioning. So a Fed that is tapering with increased duration supply, which is likely to be cannibalizing some existing long end demand where market functioning is not fully back to normal, all to me points toward a steeper curve. And we think the part of the curve that's likely to steepen the most is the 530s and 1030s slope of the curve. Thanks for joining us, Jay. I'm joined now by the head of US interest rate derivative strategy, Josh Younger. Josh, we've just heard from Jay about the outlook for supply at the long end. What exactly does this imply for swap spreads? So it, it's an error. That's not surprising. Uh, the issuance outlook is, is sizable, both in terms of how much they need to fund. It's a very wide budget deficit and potential to get wider. Um, and the way that they're going to have to fund it, which is uh, relying to a greater extent than necessarily was expected on longer maturities. Um, the introduction of the 20-year that Jay mentioned at a larger than expected size. So um, just generally speaking, that's a narrower. The potential for a steeper treasury 
yield curve at the back end. It's also a narrower, especially for the bond. And, and finally, the risk that that 20-year issue cannibalizes some demand for the bond for 30-year maturities, just because it's a better match to the liability profiles of a lot of long-end cash investors like pension funds and so forth. I mean, all of that is very much an hour and, and you don't get the usual support from the swap market participants, from the variable annuity hedgers, from banks, from uh, from insurance companies, general accounts, from a variety of participants. You, you really don't have a backstop on the swap side. So if the treasury is trying to sell a lot of paper and the swap market is not seeing uh, a sort of equal and opposite bias of flows, then, then it really points to a much narrower set of swap spreads. So how do you tend to think about the adjustment path for swap spreads to going more narrow? You know, do you sort of see this as a slow grind or is it possible that given that we still see evidence of some somewhat comprised liquidity at the very long end, that there's a more uh, rapid repricing? So liquidity is poor. Um, that was mentioned in, in a lot of the commentary that, that came out of, of the refunding announcement mentioned by the TBAC itself um, as a risk to, to the funding strategy. And and that means the price impact is, is likely to be higher. The other question that's really important is to what extent is the Fed going to be a backstop? Because uh, to date, they've been purchasing a significant fraction of supply. Um, and the question which Jay uh, spoke to earlier is, are they going to remain focused on uh, market functioning, which is clearly improved? Um, what is the bar to an acceleration purchases? Like how much does market functioning need to break down? And what is the supply scenario and in particular the spread impact that's associated with that kind of outcome. And and finally, even though the chair uh, mentioned financial conditions as another rationale potentially for, for continuing purchases, uh, the question is, what is the real shock to risk-free rates that, that starts to threaten the flow of credit and really become a financial conditions issue? And it would presumably be associated with significant repricing in swap spreads. So even if we do have the Fed stepping in at some point, there's plenty of room for spreads to narrow uh, before that happens. The last part that, that's worth mentioning is the deficit outlook is based on forecasts, and those forecasts can be wrong. And the CBO, to their credit, has done a retrospective and found that forecasting revenue uh, has been a very difficult exercise getting into a recession. So there is a risk that not only more stimulus is passed, but that government receipts are, are not in the size that are necessarily expected, and that would widen the deficit relative to, to current forecasts. I'm joined now by head of US interest rate strategy, Alex Rover. Alex, the Fed Fund's futures complex started pricing negative rates last week. How do you think the money market complex would react to this kind of expectation actually being realized? Henry, that's a great question. You know, there was a lot of shock last week when we started to see uh, Fed funds trade into negative territory out in late 2020 and early 2021. And a lot of people started to wonder if that was a sign that the Fed would shift to negative policy rates. We've commented before, along with our economists, that we don't think the Fed is likely to go to a negative policy rate. In fact, we think that the pattern that they're most likely to continue using is going to be to rely on zero interest rate policy, along with forward guidance that was quite strong as well as quantitative easing and then yield curve control if it became necessary. Interestingly, you know, this was a phenomenon that was mostly going on, you know, out in the forward part of the curve in the swaps market. And the swaps market can be influenced by a lot of other things besides policy expectations, including shifts in, in positioning. However, the policy road that we're on right now is pretty narrow and pretty bumpy when it comes to interest rate expectations. And it doesn't take much to get market rates to swerve over the line. 
in the front end of the curve, where actually most of the cash money market trades are occurring, uh, we have seen rates get uh, quite low, but they're remaining in positive territory. That is likely to continue, I believe, as bill supply is likely to remain quite high, and repo supply is going to keep uh, GC rates uh, above zero uh, in all likelihood as well. So how exactly do we reconcile the pricing of negative rates with the sort of incoming supply of collateral to the market that we're expecting over the next few months? And what exactly does this mean for spreads on repo and bills to the Fed funds curve and, and specifically the, the term structure of those spreads? Yeah, that's a good question, Henry. You know, we're anticipating that the actual cash markets where the money market funds are transacting are going to remain in positive territory, albeit at pretty low yields, maybe so, sort of single digit or low double digit sorts of levels for uh, for repo and, and, and bills as well. Uh, looking further out the curve, um, you know, as, as OIS rates are going to be subject to sort of what's going on in the swaps market, you know, it's possible we could see uh, the term structure of, of GC ultimately sort of get to a level that's that's close to zero or, or perhaps even at some point negative. Uh, we don't think that as long as the Fed is keeping policy rates in positive territory that we're likely to see actual rates uh, under normal circumstances below zero. One point I think it's, it's important to keep in mind here is as long as policy rates are in positive territory, you know, we think the money fund complex should be fine. In the event that we were to see the Fed at some point in the future uh, move to a negative policy rate, or if we were to see somehow market rates get to a point where they're actually below zero, um, there are mechanisms that exist for non-U.S. money funds, particularly those that, that operated in Europe over the past decade, uh, to deal with sort of negative rates. This would be sort of the reverse distribution mechanism. And what this would do is essentially, if it were employed, would allow money funds to uh, cancel shares while keeping keeping NAV stable. So a government money market fund, which which has a stable NAV, would be able to maintain that stable NAV. However, uh, the shareholders' number of shares that they hold on an ongoing basis could be decreased depending on sort of the the rate of share cancellation. Interestingly, it really wouldn't matter that much for prime funds because prime funds in the U.S. already have a variable NAV, so it's possible for them to you know shift up, shift their NAV up or down depending on market circumstances. Thanks, Alex. So, Josh, back to you. Firstly, do you get a sense that this move reflects a fundamental repricing of Fed funds' expectations, or is it something more technical in nature? It's largely technical. At least there's evidence that that's the case. Um, on the one hand. Uh, there's the decent pickup activity in Eurodollar calls. Uh, on the other, there's been a buildup of convexity exposure on the part of options dealers due to corporate uh, rate locking activity. There's a list of vehicles through which duration can be delivered. I, I think one of the messages of this experience is that even Eurodollar duration, even LIBOR linked duration, can be translated into Fed funds markets through the uh, pricing of FROAS, through the pricing of funding spreads, because you have a segregation between the traders of monetary policy expectations and the traders of funding spread expectations. And at the end of the day, if you're buying Fed funds futures on a spread to Euro dollars, then the absolute level of those futures is, is much less interesting. So there is a set of flows that can occur where you can kind of identify the buyer of Fed funds futures above par, even if the policy expectations are not consistent with that being the modal outcome. Um, but as with many things, you know, microstructure plays a role. So the question that I'll turn back to you, Henry, is 
to what extent did illiquidity, did the functioning of markets or, or the lack of that functioning exacerbate that move and actually propel prices above par? Yeah, so when we delve into the, the microstructure of the, the Fed funds futures market in particular, uh, I think it's worth noting that there's evidence that there's some breakdown in market microstructure, but I would also emphasize that there certainly wasn't a, a drastic collapse in, in liquidity um, you know, as evidence on Thursday or, or even into, into Friday as the Fed funds futures market you know, began to sort of sell off. Uh, you know, if we sort of delve into the order book, uh, we can kind of see that there's evidence that market depth had sort of gradually deteriorated, but I describe that as more of a grind than a sort of a rapid shift. On that sort of somewhat lower market depth, we definitely saw a pickup in volumes. They'd been sort of languishing in um, the previous few sessions and then through Thursday and Friday, there was a concerted pickup in volumes and those volumes were trading on relatively thin liquidity, which sort of helps explain how the you could have such a sort of significant price move, both up towards par and then uh, as the price moves beyond that point as well. Thanks for joining us. Stay tuned for more episodes of At Any Rate, JP Morgan's global research podcast series. This communication is provided for information purposes only. Please read JP Morgan research reports related to its content for more information, including important disclosures. Copyright 2020, JP Morgan Chase & Co., all rights reserved. This episode was recorded on May 12th, 2020.